Happy Monday, everybody, and welcome to Brain Chat. I am Dr. Mitzi Joy Williams, the nerdy neurologist, and I am so, so excited to be here with you all um, to discuss MS in the Hispanic and Latinx community. Um, I have an amazing guest with me, Dr. Liliana Amescua, and we have got an awesome discussion coming up. So I cannot wait for us to get into it. So Dr. Liliana Amescua is um, an associate professor of neurology, and she is um, a diversity, equity, and inclusion champion. I know from the many projects we've worked on together. Um, she is also the fellowship director at the University of Southern California Keck School of Medicine. Um, she's the acting chief of the Multiple Sclerosis Division. Um, she received her undergraduate degree um, from the University of California at Irvine and her medical degree from Je Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Um, she is uh, the spear, she spearheaded the Collaborative Research Consortium, the Alliance for Research in Hispanic MS, um, and serves as a principal investigator. She has many, many more amazing qualifications um, and is definitely an expert on this subject. And I'm so excited to have her with us tonight. Welcome, Dr. Amescua. Welcome back to Great Good to see you. And when you start this, because yeah. I'm going to say it in Spanish, it's Hispanic Heritage this month. So yes, um, yes. I'm going to, you know, try to own it. And uh, as a result, I'm wearing a little bit of this Hispanic heritage in me. Of course, I wear it in my skin every day. But <laughs> I see it. I see it. Um, yes. So that is one of the reasons I want to do this topic, because it is Hispanic Heritage Month. Um, so I thought it was very appropriate for us to discuss this on Brain Chat. Um, and you are the premier expert um, on this topic. And so I want to get right into it. So um, first, before we get started, you know, always on Brain Chat, I have you tell us a little bit about what got you involved in MS, particularly when we think about MS not being a disease um, that's commonly been thought to occur in the Hispanic um, Latinx community or in the African-American community traditionally. What got you involved or interested in MS? You know, it, it's a really, really simple question when it comes down to just, you know, who was I treating? So, mm -hmm. you know, I started um, as a neurology resident in uh, the University of Southern California and the mm -hmm. Los Angeles General Hospital, which is the new mm -hmm. name of old L.A. County Hospital. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and there, as I was, you know, taking care of MS patients, one of the things that I was noticing was that a lot of my patients were Hispanic, Latino, Latinx. Um, and, uh, and so I just felt perplexed with what I had been taught about MS. Mm -hmm. MS 
predominantly a you know disease in white people of northern European background and um and so I asked you know my mentor at that moment Dr. Leslie Weiner I said you know I feel that I don't know is it just because I'm here in LA which is you know 12 20 million, you know, 10 million people and right. about 60% of the population has a reference to a Hispanic Latin background. And, you know, is mm -hmm. it because of that, that I mean, are we seeing more MS in this population? Do you think this is new or do you think they've always had it? And this as well, mm -hmm. you know, I can't tell what does the literature say? And right. I read the literature at that time. And, you know, we're talking mm -hmm. about early 2000s, you know, 2004 to 2006 mm -hmm. or so. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and and there was hardly anything. There was one paper that I had found that was descriptive about um, MS and Hispanic people in Texas. And I believe that mm -hmm. was um, Dr. Rivera, Victor Rivera. Yes. Uh -huh, yeah. And, uh, and so that was it. And it was in a very, you know, it was almost like a report, not a peer review, you know, area of, of a manuscript. And so I said, you know, there's not a lot of data, but what we do know, you know, sort of the prevalence is just so low across Latin America. Do we have any information here? And of course, you know, um, we didn't have any, and I was just really desperate to try to better understand the population I was seeing. And, mm -hmm. uh, and one of the things that I was also hearing from the patients was that every time, let's say I had a new diagnosis to give to this population, they would look at me and they would say, oh, but I've read about this and it says it's a white disease, you know? Right. So very sort of, uh, I would try to validate, you know, that they were, well, you know, Hispanic people are an admix population and maybe, mm -hmm. you know, the European background without even having any data to substantiate what I was saying, but meaning I was trying to validate for them to feel like included because they felt mm -hmm. excluded by, right. you know, search something about MS. And so, um, so that led me to, you know, to start thinking about, Hey, what can I do for this population? Um, and, uh, and so I started, um, you know, at that time I was now a fellow and multiple sclerosis funded by the National Society. And, uh, I reached out to them and I said, you know, is there any, you know, at that time there was a lot of, um, educational programs that were being done. And, and I said, you know, can we do some in Spanish, uh, for this population? Um, and, you know, and so from there I started getting to know the population, getting interested. And I felt it was my duty to sort of, it's like, um, well, let me try to define at least what the clinical observations, um, that I'm seeing here in the clinic and is it true? Is it really what I'm seeing? Is it a perception? Or mm -hmm. is there really indeed some differences that I think are happening or that exist between this population and, you know, my white, uh, the white people I do treat? Yeah. You know, so I had a very similar experience with looking at MS in the African-American community. We had a little bit more literature um, than you had for the Hispanic Latinx community, but it was still very little, you know, so it's been amazing to see how far um, the knowledge and understanding has come. A lot of that is due to a lot of your amazing work, um, you as well as the ARMS Registry. Um, but so let's kind of 
take a 50,000 foot view. How common is MS in the Hispanic and Latinx community? Well, it I will say it differs across regions, right? So mm. Hispanic people, Latin people, right? We're talking about, you know, if we look at, you know, Latin America, that mm-hmm. prevalence, it differs by country. And, mm. uh, and, you know, prevalence and incidence, you know, very small. We're talking about numbers in the 20 per 100,000 in most regions or even lower. And uh, with sort of the highest ones at, you know, understanding was Argentina. And uh, and then more recently, we've learned that actually the highest um, sort of, uh, you know, prevalence and we've been seeing it steadily go higher as well as the incidence is in Puerto Rico. And so it's getting closer to, you know, sort of, you know, digits of, you know, 90 per 100,000. Uh, person. So, so it's increasing. And one of the things that's happened in Puerto Rico is that, you know, certainly there's a, you know, sort of a island registry. And so mm-hmm. that island registry, which is led by Dr. Angel Chinea, is certainly mm-hmm. has given, you know, sort of a, um, the ability to collect those cases, know mm-hmm. where they're coming from around the island, and giving a better calculation of how many people are are affected with MS. And, uh, but for here, for the United States, huge country, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And, uh, and and sort of the first sort of observations of what MS, you know, how many people of Hispanic background are living with MS or the incidents came from Kaiser data, you know, Kaiser data here in Southern Mm -hmm. California by Dr. Annetta Langergold. And, you know, Mm -hmm. noting that, you know, it is definitely not as prevalent as what has been found for black people right um compared to uh white people and so we're but we're talking about at least you know 20 times higher than what is shown in in the prevalence in latin america the latest uh and you are quite familiar with that right is you know uh noting that you know the latest prevalence study that was able to look at regions as well as race and ethnicity published in, right, in JAMA Neurology. Uh, when they examine, you know, the prevalence in 2008-2010 uh, uh, using a lot of these medical claims data, it's basically when we look at it, I mean, Black people are getting out there, right, close to white people. Right. Mm-hmm. But for Hispanic, if we want to translate it to this, you know, sort of practical way, it still shows that one in 1,000 people of Hispanic background is living with MS. Mm. And we're talking about 2010. What has happened between 2010 and now? If we just talk about the U.S. census of who the Hispanic community is, it is the fastest growing, right, Mm -hmm. population. I mean, they're the growing population. We're expected, right? Um, it's a 23% growth right. from 2010 to 2020. So we haven't mm-hmm. even counted the last three years. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, and so, what do we think the prevalence may be now? It, it may be very different, uh, not necessarily just for Hispanic, but also for um, yeah. other you know, people of color, because one of the things that has also increased, and it was noted, already there is visible in that prevalence estimate is people other right multiracial yes 
multiracial right. people, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So multiracial, you know, claiming more than one race. One of the mm -hmm. things that is happening in Hispanic people and Latinx is that they are starting to claim their color before, right. you know, they might mark probably predominantly white, but people are starting to accept uh, right. and be vocal of, you know, if they are a black Hispanic, mm -hmm. uh, but also if they're multiracial. And in fact, yeah. I just looked at the, you know, sort of the numbers of people of Hispanic background reporting more than one race increased mm. 567% from 2020. Wow. Yes. Wow. More wow. than one claims other. And so, Hispanic people may not be necessarily all under the umbrella of Hispanic. They may be under that multiracial. So yeah. these are just things to consider as, you know. Absolutely. And it's yeah. so important, right? Because we talk about this and we're talking about how we categorize. We often in science put people in one box, but people are having multiple boxes, right? Multiple boxes, um, right? You know, I mean, so how do we really capture that information to where a person feels authentic, like they don't have to choose one box or the other exactly. box, you know? Exactly. And so how do we capture that and categorize that? Exactly. So let's break down the term. And do we need to categorize, right? <laughs> and do we, absolutely. Do we need to categorize it, right? Um, so let's break down the terms. Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx. Break it down for us because, you know, um, there often is a lot of, um, you know, discussion when we talk about terms, when we are presenting a paper or when we're writing a paper. What's the correct term? Is it Latinx? Is it Latino? Is it Latina? Tell us a little bit about what those terms mean and what yeah. those um, groups are, are comprised of. Exactly. So, I mean, they Hispanic and Latino or Latina differs in respect to what you include under that box, right? right? One includes Spain, the other one in Latin, you're able to include the non-Spanish speaking countries, Brazil, right, for example. And however, the preference of using one or the other comes down to some of it is social, some of it is political. And mm. so, um, so, you know, in the United States, there was a need to categorize a certain way. Uh, and my understanding, you know, one, it, it could be, be, you know, differences by party. We're not going to mm -hmm. say different you know, parties, but, um, and so, so, so it comes down to that. However, you can have a Hispanic, both of, let's say an example, referencing of ancestry to Mexico, one mm -hmm. will call themselves Latin and another one will call themselves Hispanic. Um, so there's really no, you know, sort of good concordance between mm -hmm. both of them uh, for people. And I think it just comes down to historically what you might have been called, you know, how you call yourself with friends or family. And mm -hmm. uh, but throughout Latin America, people do prefer to just call themselves where they're from. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm from Mexico. I'm from Argentina. Mm -hmm. I'm from mm -hmm. here. And um, and then more recently, this Latinx term came to, you know, uh, proposed to be, you know, gender neutral because mm -hmm. in Spanish you have the A and the O for Latina and mm -hmm. Latina. And mm -hmm. but, um, there was a, uh, a, 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 you know, peer report, right, on mm -hmm. who prefers Latinx. And so far, it's only about less than 15% that accept that term. Wow. So. 
I have a feeling these trends will again continue to evolve. However, mm -hmm. most of in the census, it just reflects, you know, people use Hispanic. Certainly in our reporting for a lot, a lot of our studies, sometimes you use one term, but you're really trying to put an umbrella to all of them, right? You're saying right. we're also referring to Hispanic, Latin, or Latinx. Um, mm -hmm. and, um, but I have a feeling things might change. I have a feeling, you know, same issues with, you know, this broad category of Asian, right? right. Um, and so, so, so we have sort of a problem, but mm -hmm. I think, you know, for now, I always prefer to include all, and then mm -hmm. maybe just one thing throughout the manuscript, um, right. or if, unless I'm told by the editor, use both, right? Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, you're just trying to make sure that every Hispanic Latin person is, um, is, is included, and we are referring you know, depending on the region that we're looking at, for example, in the United States, you you put both. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about kind of characteristics. So, you know, you've written a lot of research about, you know, some of the characteristics that may be different about MS in the Hispanic Latinx community. Give us kind of like a, you know, 50,000 foot view of what potentially some of those differences are. And then also, I think the next part will be, what do we think is due to, right? We always have these questions about genetics. You've done a lot of genetic research, you know, and talked a lot about how there are differences in different Hispanic communities versus the Mexican community versus the Puerto Rican community. You know, genetically, there are some differences in um, background, but we want to talk a little bit about, you know, what do we think they're due to? Social determinants of health, what kind of the role of those? But first, just kind of tell us broadly, what are some of the differences that we see um, in the Hispanic Latinx community in terms of the MS, how it presents? So some of the important differences that we do see and we continue to see, because I think this is one of the very first sort of observations as a, you know, clinician and, and being there was that this is a most of the time, a younger population. Mm -hmm. um, so their age of onset, be it that first clinical event or diagnosis, tends to be much younger than what we usually see uh, compared to white people. And I'm talking about adult onset MS, right? right. Um, to differentiate mm -hmm. from pediatric. Um, so, you know, when we estimate sort of that difference, you know, it could be three to five years younger than you know, sort of, again, comparing it to a population of white patients. And, uh, and these differences can, um, can significantly differ if that individual is U.S. born. So what we've mm -hmm. seen is that also U.S. born, and not only here from our studies here at USC, but also University of Miami, uh, mm -hmm. was able to see that those that are U.S. born appear to be, you know, younger at the time of diagnosis. Now, one mm -hmm. could argue and say, okay, well, they get to the doctor faster. They perhaps have better insurance, right? Maybe, you know, that's what's driving them. Um, mm -hmm. It is possible that that's the reason or, mm -hmm. or you know, even health literacy, who knows, right? Um, mm -hmm. Compared to the um, uh, to, to the one that is foreign born. Uh, but what we do also see is that those that are foreign born um, can, you know, are at risk of higher disability. And again, what may be the causes? It could be multifactorial, uh, of which one is milk. Maybe they did start with age at an 
older, you know, older mm-hmm. onset, or is it an issue of access uh, to care, recognizing the symptoms and putting it together that this could be a mess? Um, of interest is that when we look at the time of, you know, if of migration. Um, is not, you know, most of these cases are not coming with MS, but it appears that there's this, you know, sort of 15 year gap between the time they migrated to the time Mm. that they developed MS, which kind Mm. of tells you, well, it could be environmental factors now in this new country, right, where higher prevalence of MS exists. uh, And so the factors, you know, of, of importance may be much, you know, are here more than their country where they're coming from, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so those are, you know, uh, a specific, you know, sort of observation. Um, the other one that we do see is that um, uh, it appears, and, and this has, and, you know, depending on the region in the United States is, for example, here in Southern California, as well as Texas, um, patients of Hispanic background, it appears they're two times more likely to present with optic neuritis. Mm. Um, and more, most recently, the study uh, that, again, independent, separate study from ours, which was, you know, back from 2010, uh, but Carlos Perez from Texas was mm-hmm. able to know that. Um, and these were gender and age match patients to compare to white. And, and you could see that very strikingly, that optic neuritis is, is, is particularly, you know, again, dramatic, more than two times, you know, more likely. So whether there are genetics or is it all environmental behind, mm-hmm. you know, where lesions uh, are developed? I mean, I, you know, I think there's still, you know, um, there's potential answers for both. Yes. You know, and, and, and so one of the things that we did was um, we took over a thousand patients of Hispanic background between mm-hmm. Puerto Rico, Miami and us. And we examined, um, you know, obviously this issue of optic neuritis presentation. And we found that, you know, at least from the genetic um, admixture diversity, you can see differences, um, you know, between, you know, between the patients. So, so, Mm. you know, even though you could see differences, for example, Puerto Rico and, um, and Miami had a a lower prevalence of optic neuritis, so lower frequency Mm -hmm. of optic neuritis, once Mm -hmm. you look genetic admixture, those that presented with optic neuritis didn't matter where you lived. It was, you know, those that had more Native American background uh, were two times more likely to present with optic neuritis. And uh, that was independent of African ancestry uh, and Mm -hmm. other uh, variables. Uh, What we're also, you know, able to see was that age of onset too, it -hmm. seems to be driven by that Native American ancestry independently, but also African ancestry can drive um, to an earlier age of onset in Hispanic patients. Um, Mm. And actually that one was even more dramatic, could drive the age of onset by at least 10 years versus Native American. We saw it five years and we saw the, you know, the African ancestry, you know, having a higher sort of uh, um, magnitude of effect. And so, so, there's something about that that probably should be explored at a deeper level, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, more at the, you know, sort of uh, local ancestry 
you know, we were just getting general, you know, sort of global references, uh, which mm -hmm. can capture some of the, you know, environmental factors. But one can, you know, sort of look deeper to see if there are actually specific genetic, you know, uh, predispositions. Um, to right. I mean, so this is so fascinating to me because, as you know, this data did not exist, right, when we came out of training. Um, you know, so when we think about, you know, wanting to get to the bottom of genetic differences, um, obviously, you know, historically, there's been a big push to make sure that people understand that by and large, we are all very similar, right? Genetically. So, you know, you know, we have to kind of, we want to balance that. Yes, there may be some underlying differences that may drive certain things, but overall we're all very similar, you know? So when we think about why we see worse outcomes in particular communities, such as the black, Hispanic, Latinx, Latino community, Talk, talk a little bit about social determinants of health and how those may play along with or how those may interact with, you know, for instance, biologic differences to lead to some of those outcomes. Yeah. So so really, really important. And and as you know, you know, several years ago, this concept of social determinants of health was you know, always put on the side. People did not consider this to be science, right? And right. many, and it was hard to talk about it, uh, right? right? Um, and people sometimes equate social determinants of health to access to care, which I do right. want to make a point that is not the same. Um, it is part of social determinants mm -hmm. of health. So mm -hmm. social determinants of health are those factors, right? Social conditions that we are born to live, grow, and die to. Right. And, mm -hmm. and they have tremendous capacity uh, to affect our healthcare outcomes, right? Or are mm -hmm. the way, you know, disease comes and goes or stays, right? And mm -hmm. uh, and in many cases, uh, particularly uh communities that have been disadvantaged uh, for many reasons, right? Either from you know, economic deprivation or discriminated or ignored. Um, they can be at higher risk, right? Because mm. social terms of health represent, you know, these factors are not at random in many cases, right? They right. were distributed intentionally in a certain mm. way um, by where the countries that we live in, you know, but, mm. you know, all the way. And so, um, so, so these factors have been noted to have capacity um, to explain a lot of the variability that we see in, in, in health outcomes. And, uh, and so, for example, in multiple sclerosis, right, we were able to note that, um, that you know, for example, Black uh, people as well as Hispanic people affected with MS are, you know, are at higher risk of being affected by these issues. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and so some of these issues are as simple as, you know, misinterpretation of, mm -hmm. you know, of some of these tests that are conducted in, in people of color and referencing back to a white population and not referencing right. back to their own controls. Mm -hmm. um, so this is really important, right? Education, you know, um, uh, and the socioeconomic um, uh, areas or incomes that, you know, uh, that, you know, patients affected with MS really need to be compared to appropriate references. Um, mm -hmm. What we do see is, for example, 
you know, differences in who has access, for example, to a specialist, right? Mm-hmm. So um, for Hispanic people, uh, you know, data suggested by Saidi was that, you know, they are 40% less likely to have access to a specialist, right? Mm-hmm. Which is very different to Black people, which is 30%. So Absolutely. really, they're all having difficulty getting to a a neurologist. And why is that? You know, is it all an issue because they don't have um, the appropriate, um, uh, you know, sort of uh, next to them a neurologist? Or is mm-hmm. it an issue that they are not being referred to the mm-hmm. specialist by primary care? Um, right. or their symptoms being ignored. So I want to also consider, you know, it's not all on the patient that right. some of, you know, these social issues also pertain to us health providers and the systems that they get cared in, right? Um, because they did not, you know, we or the physician did not think about MS because of the color of their skin or their background. Um, right. And they're still reading ancient, um, <laughs> or not too ancient. Very old studies. <laughs> you know, I still have people coming into the office and saying, Dr. Williams, somebody saw me and said, Black people don't get MS, you can't have MS. I mean, like in 20... You still hear these stories? You know? Yes. So... 23, we haven't done enough to change that yet yeah, all over. We still you know? got some work to do. We still got some work to do, you know. But the bottom line is anybody can get MS, right? Um, the other thing I think is important is that, you know, certainly there is a risk for poor outcomes in some groups, but it also is not a guarantee that because you are black or because you're Hispanic, that you're going to have horrible MS, right? You know, so I think we want to make sure that we are, you know, I always encourage people go to the doctor, get seen. If you can see a specialist, try to see a specialist. Um, but, you know, again, no group of people is a monolith, right? Everybody is, MS is a very individualized disease, um, but it really is very important to examine these populations that have for many years been overlooked um, as part of the MS community, you know, which is why we don't have those reference groups, you know, to kind of say what's normal, what the normal course of disease right. is, because there's just been very low enrollment of these populations in our clinical studies. Right. So we think about, um, you talked a little bit about access to care. So what are some of the barriers to care that are specific to um, the Hispanic Latinx community? Like we know that certainly language is one, um, but I've heard you talk many times about different, you know, belief systems about where their MS may come from and how, you know, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so certainly, I mean, I think, you know, from the Hispanic population, there, you know, there are a number of barriers that, you know, Mm -hmm. not only are pertinent to MS, but in general, as, you know, again, Mm -hmm. in a general fashion, right, because you can find these all over. Uh, But yes, cultural and language barriers uh, can be big. Of course, you're talking about a population where there is a different, you know, um, uh, language uh, that can be present, right? Spanish, but it's not only the Spanish issue, is the cultural, you know, aspect to it, you know, how acculturated are they to the U.S. way versus their old, you know, the ways of their country can differ. Mm -hmm. And those can are enough to uh, cause changes in how you access or take care of your health. And it's not necessarily because they don't want to take care of it. It's just their belief systems are different, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, 
you know, what, you know, has been shown. And, and again, does the lower level of health literacy have anything to, you know, is it just because there has been, no, it's because again, we're talking about here, a disease that's not been quite prevalent in this population. So their mm-hmm. literacy is lower, not because they're less educated, is because mm-hmm. there's not been enough advocacy or, you know, talking about MS in right. this population. Mm-hmm. Um, right? So, so, so there so has this- been, let's say, a lot of talking about diabetes and hypertension, yeah. right? Those right. conditions are very familiar to minority ethnic groups, but MS, not so much. Not so much. And, you mm-hmm. know, and with diabetes, and, you know, you can see a lot more of mm-hmm. what that diabetes looks like. And, uh, and you know someone with diabetes, in many cases with MS, you don't know anybody else, right? Uh, uh, or if you did, you know, because MS, you know, maybe they knew someone that was using a cane early on. And some of the cultural aspects of the of, of Hispanics is that sometimes you don't necessarily ask what that patient has. Uh, mm. And it might be a family member, you know, you mm. just integrate them, you but you don't talk about their disease, right? Mm. Um, uh, There's also an issue of who has insurance and the type of insurance. Unfortunately, you know, uh, this population is a a greater percentage of them, you know, about 15% um, don't have, uh, you know, have low insurance. And so low insurance means lower access to specialists, unfortunately, right? And Mm. this is a very specialized disease. Um, So, um, so that can be a barrier. Um, Also, the cultural aspects is that um, if there are social cultural, you know, perceptions of the disease, we have shown that it can probably hinder their ability to wanting to take a disease modifying therapy, which is Mm -hmm. so important in this disease, but also they feel the need that they need to be, you know, sort of understood by the family about what MS is before they can make a decision. And that Mm. we have in sort of our focus groups where, you know, it's so important for them to not just know about the disease, but they need their family members to understand the disease Mm. uh, because that will help them make decisions. Um, Another thing that was really interesting that I found out was that a systematic review that was conducted found that close to 70% of healthcare providers held moderate levels of implicit bias towards Latinos. And mm, so I'm not surprised. On the other side, right? So so these implicit biases and you know can hold negative attitudes, right? Mm-hmm. Towards uh, you know, towards, you know, between that patient physician relationship. And and so it, it causes them to refrain from discussing all their symptoms and their issues with the doctors, right? Mm-hmm. Which further just exacerbates the, you know, sort of health disparities. Um, yeah. So, you know, in the way that we address them, right? And it comes down to this so cultural, you know, humility and competence that, you know, to facilitate, we need to be facilitators in mm-hmm. allowing people of color and, and diversity to to feel welcome that this is a safe space for them to talk about their symptoms and their perceptions as irrational as they may be right absolutely absolutely and not call them crazy because they feel you know ms was granted from something you know 
exactly. and yeah. but overall i mean what we do see is that um you know uh another thing is that you know and this is not only to hispanic but also was found in in black people or at least living in in texas from uh, orlando's recent paper was that you know they're dealing greater with distance issues transportation to care mm-hmm. be mm-hmm. a you know a barrier and when you compare them to white people and they're you know they have a higher higher percentage of them are living in socially deprived uh right. neighborhoods and right. again you know a lot of these neighborhoods again are um are the result of you know sort of uh segregation practices you Absolutely. name it yeah. things that started long long before me right absolutely which gets daunting right from from yeah. a perspective of uh you know what can we do well yeah, exactly. we can actually do a lot we can actually yeah. do a lot yeah, so, tell, so you know, so where do you start, right? So I know we don't have another five hours to talk about that, but where do you start, right? So, you know, in tackling this issue of health equity, you know, there are so many different layers to it, right? There is patient empowerment and activation, right? Trying to educate the patient population to advocate for themselves and their care partners. Um, but there certainly are structural issues, right? We talk a lot about increasing diversity in our clinical trials, being intentional about how we reach out to communities about the importance of research. So what would be your, let's say, top two places to start if you had your magic wand and you could wave it anywhere? How do we begin to tackle this problem and kind of break down some of these barriers? Well, I think, you know what? You're doing it right now. It's this, <laughs> right. It's, it's brain chat programs like yours that are able to reach the community and others, uh, bringing people like us to talk about it. Like I said, this topic was so difficult to talk about it 10 years ago. And, you know, you and I, we've been doing this. I've been doing this for a long time, right? It took a long time for people to acknowledge that, you know, or accept. And and we're talking about our own community of clinicians and scientists to Mm -hmm. actually say these people are getting MS, even if at the time it was perceived at a lower rate. They, mm-hmm. that they deserve to be, you know, including clinical trials, but also mm-hmm. deserve for us to take a look at how their disease affects them. And, mm-hmm. and, and so it took a while, right, to talk that internally. Now yeah. it's really, you know, let's talk about it. Let's feel comfortable with the subject and, yeah. uh, and invite our patients. And recognize that their perceptions, and you know very clearly, right, we both were part of these studies, that we understood that their perceptions of what research is doesn't Mm -hmm. defer to what, you know, it's not uh, disease specific, right? Right. They have the same perceptions as for what has been found in other literature of other diseases, Mm -hmm. is that they're concerned about what we're going to do with their data, Right. Mm-hmm. They're concerned that they're, we're going to get low. They're going to get lower quality of care. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And so and in um, many cases, historically, they have a right to be right. You know, um, there, are, there are numerous documented things that have happened that have been detrimental, um, you know, and even with concerns about your uh, your data. You know, if I give my phone number or email to one website, the next thing you know, I get 
50 emails that I didn't, you know, so, so those are valid concerns. And I think it's important for us not to um, discount them, um, but mm-hmm. to try to address them, you know, as realistically exactly. as possible. And right. also to try to see how we as scientists can renovate the way that we do research or reimagine uh, some exactly. of the ways that we do research in order to make it more accessible um, to Absolutely. everyone. Absolutely. And, you know, and I also think it's so important to support initiatives that are specific to them. So your registry, my registry, they need to continue for now, right? Eventually, yes. Do we need any specific ones? Hopefully not. But for now, they deserve their, you know, they deserve to be seen and heard. Absolutely. And, And we need to hear them. We need to you know, hear them. Um, of course, you know, we want to learn about them genetically, epidemiologically, socially, right. Right, uh, environmentally, and, and uh, but we, you know, and, and obviously also clinical trial initiatives like the CHIMES mm-hmm. study, um, you know, such a huge sort of, you know, it, it was, a, I think, a breaking point to mm-hmm. to sort of say, hey, you know, how much have we learned, Mitzi? I mean, we've learned so much. Yeah, and we're not even done with the study. But I know. It's learned- not even done. Like, I just get excited every time. It's exciting. I, I mean, yeah. the enrollment that occurred during COVID, these Absolutely. people, you know, um, they're hungry. We're hungry. We want to know about them. They want to know about their disease. Um, right. And, right. Uh, and then, of course, you know, from advocacy and from, um, you know, research uh, foundations and, and NIH, we need to support health disparity research um, mm-hmm. because it's so important. I mean, That's I don't true. know if you saw the, the latest, uh, you know, uh, neurology paper. This is over. You know, just, yeah, this, yeah, this is uh, just in general about mortality and mm-hmm. how many lives could you have saved, you know, sort of the over excess of, you know, of, um, of deaths in neurology of, Mm. if you're black, you know, if you're black, there's, you know, you could, we could have saved more lives just, you know, and so, so these are really important things, um, that we cannot ignore. Absolutely. Um, so tell us a little bit more about the arms registry and how people get involved in that if they're able to. Tell us a little bit more about it. Yes. Yeah, so the Alliance for Research on Hispanic MS or ARMS um, was, you know, I spearheaded this with Jake McCauley from University of Miami and Angel Chinea, as well as Jorge Oxenberg at UCSF. And this was, you know, over 10 years. And, uh, and it was very simple. We came together and we said, hey, I have a registry, you have a registry. Can we align it? And can we, you know, of course, you know, to, to welcome patients being of Hispanic self-identified, right? Because you have to self, mm-hmm. self-identify with MS. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so we collect, uh, you know, their medical records. We collect uh, questionnaires and we take mm-hmm. blood samples for future mm-hmm. genetic and now immunological studies. And we've mm-hmm. been doing this and, um, and, you know, with, you know, great success, of course, uh, we have not, you know, step by step, right? We started off with uh, a lot of sort of, you know, just descriptive and, you know, genetic analyses. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and anybody can participate. Again, if you have, if you're Hispanic and you have MS, you can go to the ARMS website, um, and which is just arms.org, 
And you can contact one of our coordinators uh, by phone or by email, and we'll reach out to you and see and, and get you enrolled. Um, of course, it's, you know, it's free. And, uh, and, you know, together, I mean, we have learned so much. And, wow. you know, none of this data that we have could be without their participation, right? Absolutely. Um, and, uh, and, and so really, really just, you know, really grateful so far for all the different funders and supporters, but it needs to be kept alive, right? Just like any, any registry. And uh, so, so, you know, uh, it, it's keeps on going right now. We have almost at 3000, I think it's reached the 3000. Wow. 3000. Uh, yeah, amazing. So, thousand from each site and uh and so again it's it, it's steady you know slows down sometimes depending on mm -hmm. you know on what's going on in the world like covid when it was happening mm -hmm. but, um, mm -hmm. but other than that, we try to catch everyone uh, and invite yeah. them it's an yeah. invitation mm -hmm. okay so last question as we're coming up toward the end of our time what are you excited about um what 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 uh projects or initiatives or studies, what are you excited about in this space to help us to further our information, to further our knowledge, to improve outcomes? What do you, what, what do you get excited about? Well, I'm, I'm just really excited right now. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that comes to mind right now is that we have some biological data that's being collected at Chimes. Can't mm -hmm. wait to see that because that's mm -hmm. going to be a Important. We're mm -hmm. also uh, looking at, you know, um, some immunological behavior uh, within our patients. And this is a study that I'm with Tim Bartanian and uh, Nancy Mosen and mm -hmm. uh, compared to controls that will give us some information in terms of even, you know, why. Um, you know, particularly in the Black population, right, you see some preference for B cell therapy. Well, is it also right. true? Hispanic, um, or, uh, but the other aspect is that we're about to um, analyze 500 patients of Hispanic background and multitude, multitude of social determinants of health um, mm. to try to better, you know, understand what can we do and, and you know, sort of uh, develop strategies. Um, and then, of course, you know, you and I are involved in the diversification of clinical trials. And I think that mm. is that is done. I mean, I think moving forward in me, it's just cannot be ignored. Um, yeah. and, um, and so I think, you know, making this a world issue, right. An international issue is that it is not just a U.S. issue. Um, yes. it is a world issue. Um, mm -hmm. then, you know, there'll be more voices, more support, um, that MS is, is global. Uh, of course, you know, there are regional differences uh, in mm -hmm. what we need to tackle, uh, but we can do, you know, we can tackle this. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I'm very much excited about the same things, just the fact that um, we can have conversations like these and they are not um, dismissed, you know, or not thought of as important, right? So I think it's a very exciting time to be in the MS space, but I think we also have to continue to move forward, right? Um, you know, make sure that this is not something that just goes by the wayside, you know, after it was a really hot topic for a year or two, but that we continue the work, you know? And so That's I'm right. always excited to talk to you because you're doing so much amazing work. Um, yeah. you know, and to, I'm excited to, for what you're doing too. I know this talk is about me, but 
but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Williams. Yeah. Well, we've got some cool stuff going on. So I cannot wait to see. Coming up soon, right? Our chapter. Our chapter, yeah, yeah, our chapter that yeah. just got published in Neurology. Sure, everybody should be reading it. Absolutely, absolutely, about um, MS and diverse populations. So, um, you know, it is always a pleasure, Dr. Amescua, to have you on Brain Chat. I mean, you're just a wealth of knowledge um, and always um, so inspiring. You know, thank you for all the amazing work that you're doing. Thank you to those of you who've been watching Brain Chat, and we will see you again in two weeks. Thanks, Dr. Amescua. Thank you so much. Let's see.